This Choircast podcast episode is brought to you by Heretic Happy Hour, whose tagline is burning questions, not people. Join hosts Shonda Jaw, December Rose, Dr. Reverend Katie Valentine, Keith Giles, and myself, Matthew J. DiStefano, for a happy hour filled with quality conversation, fine fellowship, and perhaps even a laugh or two. Unapologetically irreverent and crass, yet sometimes profound, we make sure to pull no punches and leave no stones unturned as we discuss the Christian faith. But listener, beware. There will assuredly be some serious sacred cow tipping. If that sounds like your cup of tea, or bourbon if that's your thing, head on over to heretichappyhour.com to stay up to date with us. And be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcast fix. Western Christianity has spent the last 2,000 years telling everyone they're separated from God. This is Not Church with John and Nat Turney. Hey everybody, welcome back to the podcast. My name is Nat Turney. I am one of your hosts. You know what? You get two hosts on this show. I know some shows have four. I feel like that's overkill, Heretic Happy Hour. You know who you are. Four hosts. Come on, man. Look at you with your with your embarrassment of riches for hosts. Uh, I feel like two is more than enough oftentimes. And Jason, if you're listening, I think you don't need three, but hey, what <laughs> Jeez, you I'm throw, gonna throw shade. Two, I'm gonna throw shade on two better podcasts. <laughs> two hey, of our partners people, you've already thrown under the bus. Hey, some people get ahead by being good, some people by tearing others down. I I, I feel like I've taken the second track. So All right, Trump Jr. All right. Oh, you know what? Screw you, man. <laughs> anyway, uh, the the guy chirping on the other side of the microphone is my brother John. Say hi, John. Hi, John. All right, cool. At least some things are consistent. I love that. And this is uh, the uh, the podcast we call "This Is Not Church." We are joined today by our friend Jonathan Foster. Uh, we have a lot to talk about with Jonathan, but what, I guess first and foremost, we want to talk about um, this dissertation that he's written that is becoming a book. The title of which is "Theology of Consent," and it has to deal with mimetic theory, which I love, and which John is scared of. Yeah, I'm so, a little uh, bit scared of, yeah. <laughs> he gave yeah. me that look like, oh, man. But I, I tell you what, this is going to be a fascinating conversation. Jonathan is an awesome guy. He's written way more than one book. So this is just the, the latest in a string of really awesome pieces of writing from him. But I'm sure this is something he has spent a, an enormous amount of time on. Um, if, uh, and it's about to uh, be released into the world. So welcome to the podcast, Jonathan. What's up, man? Hey, man. I'm doing good. Thank you so much for having me back. We got to chat a little bit a year ago or so. And, yeah, uh, feels we like had yesterday. A, we <laughs> had a relatively good time, I thought. And yeah. so, hey, relatively good. Um, yeah. Good enough that a year ago later, we're like, hell yeah, come on. Let's, do it, Let's um, do it again. I know we, yeah. we, we chatted about your dissertation a year ago because you were in the middle of writing it or you That's were right. deep, deep in the weeds of it. Um, and for anyone who's ever written something like a dissertation, y'all know. Um, how much it can consume your life. I mean, it is, this is not, you know, writing just, this is a, this is a scholarly work. I assume this is going to be yeah, something that is, uh, that, that is well researched and has, has, has had to have uh, had a lot of work put into it. So yeah, you're, you're, you have to call me doctor. So if, in order oh. for that to happen, you better, you better put uh, some work into it. So yeah. So doctor. <laughs> I assume by the time that this episode releases, you will have... Def- have you already defended your dissertation? I've already defended. I'm the real deal. Everything has been he officially the real deal. And, oh, uh, so you are officially right now. So when we titled this, we have to say with Dr. John Jonathan Foster. Foster. You, uh, All right, so you can, Doc, let's, yeah, let's talk yeah. about this thing. Um, <laughs> yeah. if, I, if, I can, if I can call you Doc. Um, sure. First of all, 
Congratulations. I, Absolutely. I, I, yeah. And I'm, in, I'm, I'm always impressed when, when other people reach academic heights that I will never attain. So man, congratulations. Uh, um, you, you deserve all the, all the accolades that will come, I'm sure, from this book, man. I'm just super proud of my associate's degree. So, uh, that's I, right. Yeah, yeah. You should be. You should I'm be. Super, sure. I'm super happy with my liberal arts bachelor degree that my son, who's a, who's an engineer, likes to remind me all the time is a, is, is a liberal arts degree, dad. I'm like, you know what? Screw you. I got a 4.0 and I'm happy with that. <laughs> so, but so yeah, let's, let, let's, uh, if you don't mind, um, let's, uh, let's just jump right in. So, Theology of Consent. There was a subtitle to the book that I that I missed, and is something to do yep. with mimetic theory. So, what's the yep. subtitle of the book? Yeah, Theology of Consent: Mimetic Theory in an Open and Relational Universe. So, this is where um, I take Rene Girard's mimetic theory and I bring it together with open and relational theology, and I see the sparks and the smoke fly, uh, and try yeah. to figure out kind of. What, you know, how they converge, but also how they diverge. They're two you know, radically different kind of ideas. They approach the nature of reality from different spots. So it was super challenging. And as far as we know, um, I, no one has really done this before. So, which was a lot of fun to be kind of like uh, the first to kind of bring these together. But it was also, it was also challenging because I didn't have a lot of stuff to read. In order to try to draw from, so I remember when when we, we discussed this a year ago. I remember saying, "Oh yeah, okay," because I'm 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 an amateur, a novice at best when it comes to open and relational theology. That's a very new thing for me, and I'm a little bit further ahead in in Gerard. And again, still still a novice. Okay, so no no, I've read him. I've read others who have, who who write about him. I understand to some degree mimetic theory, but. I don't, I, I do think that I immediately saw like, okay, I can see this connection between Gerard like, and... What, what did you see as the connection? Well, the connection for me seems to be, and, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, I, I understand that from Gerard's point of view, he doesn't, he doesn't subscribe to free will in the sense that, say, like Protestant evangelicals would, right? It's, and it's not, but it's not from any sort of sense of predestination. It was always from a sense of, listen, you just can't escape all of the things that, that, that will come along to shape you and, and give you limited choices in life. And so the idea of complete autonomy is, is sparsical, I would say, to, to, to Gerard. Which means to me that open relational theology, I, I think, tries to escape that, that, that tractor beam as well of, listen, you are predetermined to walk this path, right? This is, this is the way things have to go. I don't know. I, I, can, I can see those dovetailing nicely, but in, in a, nice. but in a way That's that nice creates work, a lot man. of tension, right? There's still going to be some tension there, I would think, because um, where does Gerard stand on, say, the sovereignty of God, or does he even have an opinion about the, the sovereignty of God? Because mimetic theory is is as much a discipline that doesn't necessarily have to be religious in nature, right? I mean, you can divorce mimetic theory entirely and still have those kind of concepts that shape society that sort of anthropologically deal with with human evolution and our tendencies toward violence and all these other things. So I'm not so sure that that Gerard would even, uh, and, and I'm if if he has, I've just missed it. So any sort of any sort of sense of the sovereignty of God, or would it even come into play for him? Sovereignty in terms of like God's predetermined things and is yeah, in control, or God, or God being in control. You know, God somehow being the grand puppet master. You know, who holds all things together and guides everything. So 
I don't know. Yeah, what do you think? it's um, well, there's a bit of tension there. Gerard was a devout Catholic, so he is going to lean into that, especially the further he gets into life. But no, I don't think, I can't think of anything he's written on that specifically. But your first intuition, I think, is correct in the sense that um, both open and relational theology and Girardian thinking is built on, uh, well, relationality, you know, interdependence, interconnectedness. Um, Girardians will might, may, would maybe call it um, interdividuality. Which I really like that word. So you're an individual, but you're, you know, you're interdependent. So, um, I pretty quickly and, you know, landed on that. That was relatively easy to see that these, these things did converge in this kind of relational thing. And then there's, I mean, once you kind of buy into, so to speak, relationality as the reality of the cosmos, holy cow, there's so many implications, um, that comes out of all of that. And so I think there's some nice, um, overlap between the two because of those things. Yeah. Well then wouldn't that wouldn't that fit you in nicely too with the with the with the mystics, you know, who I mean, think of guys like Richard Rohr and Thomas Merton who who so emphasize the relationality of God, even within God's self. And so there is this, you know, this whole this whole concept of relationality as it comes even within the Godhead. And so, you know, what what Richard Rohr would say in the beginning was the relationship. And then everything we have is birthed out of that relationship. And so that's why I've always, whether or not I ever named open relational theology, I think I've leaned towards that thinking anyway, because I never was real comfortable with the idea that, I don't know, just the, this, the, the sort of almost neo-Calvinist sort of hyper-sovereignty, you know, this, this idea that we're literally just pawns on a chessboard, you know, it's almost like sort of Clash of the Titans style, right? Where you know, the gods are just up there placing us where they want us and I just never sat well with me, you know? And so yeah, it's, a, it's not a, it's a disempowering, uh, theology. Though. Yeah. When I was reading, a, I was reading a, a, a post by Thomas Ord on Facebook just a little while ago, just something he'd written about a librarian who was putting one of his books in the library. But did you see the comments? And there was a comment there that says, well, doesn't that notion of God dethrone God? And I thought Thomas Ord's re- response to that was, was, was like, no, no, it's it absolutely not. It doesn't, how does that dethrone God? It, this other idea of God somehow that we could sort of minimize into this role that dethrones, you know, or maybe does dethrone a version of God that needs to be dethroned. So, but I don't know. I just, I just thought that was really interesting that people, sometimes that seems to be some of that initial kickback, right? Is like, because we've become so accustomed to this idea of God a certain way that the second that is challenged, all of a sudden, we're, we're kicking, we're kicking God off the throne. So what, if somebody came to you and said something similar to that, what would your response be to this dethroning of God? So that if someone takes initiative and does something that they're dethroning God, is that the question? Or that, or that if we claim that God, like, like, like Tom does, and I think you probably would, that there are just things God cannot do, you know, that, that God is, you know, that, so obviously the thesis of Tom's book, um, that God can't, um, meant to bristle a little bit, but you know, but anyway, yeah, just that just that notion that that the the you know our 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 concept of God as Almighty maybe needing to be taken down a notch or two. Does that make sense? Yes. Yeah, I I write quite a bit about that in Theology of Consent regarding uh, just capital O omnipotence and the damage yes. I think that it's done uh, to Christianity in the West and probably everywhere. But obviously, I just know it more in the in the West. So yeah. once you dive into a true omnipresence, 
it really winds up disassembling so much of this top-down hierarchical uh, capital O omnipotence, um, dominating God's in control, God's got it figured out, blueprint, uh, kind of a paradigm. So, uh, no, I, yeah, I, I very much, uh, of course, Tom is a good friend and was my, was my doctor mentor. So it was, it's been fun yeah. to hang out with him the last three years. Um, and so, yeah, I'm very much thinking that apart, you know, the great privilege and honor, uh, maybe responsibility, but I'll definitely stick with privilege and honor of being a human is to partner with the divine and that, that the divine, like a good parent, like, you know, we don't need to tell our kids what to do. Um, we want to partner with them and help them figure out, you know, what they want to do in life. And so because of that, I just superimpose that idea over my thoughts about God. And it seems to make, it seems to make uh, some healthy sense, especially in this day and age where there's been so much forced upon us, uh, religion and politics and nationalism. And I just constantly find myself just like, no, man, I, I want to make up my own mind, give me space. And I think most people are like that. And so I think there's a lot of really healthy ways, healthy things about that. And I think there's a biblical way to see that that is potentially the kind of God that we have. Yeah. Um, I love it, man. So it, it, it might be useful at this point. It, it seems like we're presupposing for some folks some knowledge of, of Rene Girard and, and, and mimetic theory and also even open revelational um, theology. So uh, is, would you be comfortable with like a Cliff Notes version of mimetic theory and kind of giving folks a rundown? Because again, sometimes we just use these words as though people automatically know what they mean. No matter what right. sitting, be sitting there going, what the hell is mimetic theory? So, <laughs> right, know. right, right. Well, uh, let me just, I'll do a quick rundown of open relational. That might go a little bit quicker. And okay, then we can sure. do mimetic theory, though both of them, you, it's easy to get off in the weeds. But Absolutely. You know, open relational has to do, I mean, I usually start with the relational concept and that, um, that it seems like what uh, the best way to describe the nature of reality is that everything is in relationship, interconnected from the microscopic to the macroscopic. And so this is means you and I are connected in really interesting ways and we're connected with the world. The world's connected with us. And also, uh, God is interconnected in all the middle of that too, enmeshed, entangled, all these really great words. And because God is entangled with us and we're entangled with God, what it does is, A, it allows God to respond and to react, um, to be a God that hears and listens and, and really gets involved in our life. A lot of people probably don't realize that most American Christianity is built upon the idea that God, back to your idea about sovereignty, you know, that God is impassable and immutable and can't be affected and is perfect. And, uh, so open and relational theology, you know, stands, um, in contrast to all that. And is saying, no, actually, there's a way to read the Bible. Well, first of all, there's a way to read the Bible to believe that God is perfectly, you know, unaffected and not changing. Um, I just don't think it's a healthy way to read it. And so when you factor in the idea that everything is in relationship, including God with us, that God can be influenced. Um, like a good parent is influenced when their kid experiences something. I mean, how much more so than with, uh, with a divine and us? And so God can, in that sense, be changed and be affected. That doesn't mean that God um, has their, the essence of who they are changed, and we can get into talking about more of that if we want. But um, 
Yeah. So A, the relationality piece means that God can truly interact, which I think is a biblical thing. And then B, what it also means is that, which leads to the second part, the open part, it means that the future is not predetermined. So God doesn't necessarily know exactly how everything's going to play out. Because if you're truly in relationship, you don't know how tomorrow's going to go. I mean, you might have some good guesses, and I assume the divine has some better guesses even than I do. But, um, you know, if I, if I know what's going to happen, then there's no reason for faith. There's no reason for trust. And, um, we don't, we don't describe relational re- relationships, you know, earthly relationships to be positive or healthy if the other person, you know, knew everything that was going to happen like a robot before it happened. So, um, so we don't do that either, uh, with the divine. So that's, that's open and relational in a nutshell. And it's, it's really built around relationality and there's about a billion uh, sub things to all of that. But that well, gives and before that. We, and, and before we go on to, 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 to mimetic theory, or as some would say, mimetic theory, I don't know. I always say mimetic. But, um, um, your medic, my medic, everyone's your medic. medic. Our medic theory. Um, <laughs> <laughs> am I safe in assuming then, though, even with, so, so obviously open and relational theology is going to be a, a large, you know, a large category that there are people within those streams that disagree with each other, obviously, who who might not go as far as some others, who who might push back. Because I remember talking to, uh, I think even Mark Harris about, you know, okay, well then does this call into question even the omniscience of God? Because if, if we're going to make the audacious statement that God can't do certain things, then there are things that maybe God can't know, which leaves that open-endedness of things. And maybe God, you know, maybe the divine can know every possible permutation, but the choice is squarely on you. And so therefore you, that, you know, are, uh, have a hard time understanding of, of, of uh, a concept of God that allows for free will and then is still controlling. Well, you know, so, so go ahead, John. I was just going to say, I mean, I mean, you enter, in, enter the world of nihilism. If you're, if you're, if you go down the, the, the trail that says that God knows everything, because at that point you, What's the point, right? There's no point in you doing or caring about anything because if God knows the, the, the outcome of everything, then you're just like, fuck it. I'm just going to do whatever the hell I want because <laughs> well, yeah. God already, God already has a plan and whatever mess ups or destruction behavior I, I have brought to this world or to me or to my family or to whatever was already predetermined. God already knows all this. And so you have this whole like nihilist idea that I don't, it doesn't matter anymore, right? Because God knows all of this. And so you live in a world where I'm just not, I'm just going to do whatever the hell I want, which is, it's a weird place to be, right? Because you have like within like the hyper grace movement, you have people saying, well, if you don't believe in the ultimate, you know, like sin is a problem, then you become a plate, a person who doesn't care. But at the same time, if you believe that God is in, in control of everything, then what's the point, right? Yeah. Well, I think it's interesting too, because even people who do believe that God is in control of everything, they still get up every day like we all do, and they have to make decisions. They don't necessarily live like God is in control of everything. They make choices, and they make choices based on value and yeah. possibility and potential. So exactly. at the end of the day, like for me, it, it kind of just gets to be like, it just, it's, it's pointless. We, we don't, none of us live that way anyhow. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, I think that that's, that's important to consider. And I think it's, it's problematic. And, 
I think it's a healthier way to read the text, to read to read scripture, and to approach life in with the sense that um, no, my choices matter. It doesn't mean that I have like carte blanche. I can do anything I want every single day. I don't think any of us necessarily believe that. There's a lot of systems and conditions that we all have to live within and under, but um, there's there's still always agency. There's always still a possibility right. uh, well, to, to make certain choices. And then that can segue us into mimetic theory, which sort of deals with that issue of agency, right? So it sort of deals with, especially for Gerard, you know, and I, I, I'll just say this before I let you go, but so much of what Gerard posits is, is happening on a subconscious level, right? And so there's all this happening, although we're not necessarily consciously aware that we're doing this. So um, anyway, but mimetic theory in a nutshell, <laughs> that's a harder, right. that's maybe a harder task. <laughs> uh, maybe. Um, maybe. Also, I should, yeah, I should say too, to answer your other question, yeah, there, there is definitely uh, some uh, disagreement within open relational theology about how, yeah, some of these things, yeah. how some of these things play out. I would say that uh, if you have a choice between me and Mark Karras, always go with Mark. So that's uh, that's a rule. Mark's a good dude, man. But 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 you you sound like you're you're kind of cut from the same cloth. I mean, I, I see him and Tom as being. I, I, we've interviewed both of them, and they are different. You know, I don't think they agree on everything, and I love that. Um, they're very respectful of one another, which I also love. I felt like Mark, and correct me if I'm wrong in my in my in my sense about Mark. Mark tries to stay within the framework. I think sometimes of 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 Christianity a little bit more. I think Tom almost doesn't care too much. Like, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go where, where it leads me. Mark was able for me to rescue the concept of a petitionary prayer. Like it was about to go on the chopping block. And Mark, Mark showed me in, in Divine Echoes a way to go, no, okay, there's, there's utility here. There is agency here. And there is a way to participate with the divine. And I, that was, that was, very, very, very helpful. And, uh, and I, I don't, again, I don't know where Tom, we didn't really get on that subject too much with Tom, but I just, well, I don't I mean, if it's between me, Mark and Tom, you definitely have to go with Tom. So, I mean, there <laughs> <Yeah>. you go. <laughs> so you're, so you're solidly in third place. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, and, uh, uh, I'm even further than that. That's just the and, only names you've and, mentioned so far. And Greg Boyd gets like a distant fourth. <laughs> I'm not even sure. Is Greg, Greg Boyd solidly in the open relational camp, or is he just kind of a Greg, hanger? He on? doesn't want to be. He doesn't, doesn't want to be in any camp, does he? He doesn't even know. Yeah. <laughs> what does Greg know? I don't know. He's he's written. He writes big books, man. He does. I still he have uh, Death of the Warrior God on my on my bookshelf that I've about a third way through, and I'm like, yeah, I applaud one. your effort, dude. But God, that's well, two I mean, volumes of yeah. massiveness. But. <laughs> I, I, in my world, I, I, I would, hey, I would it, lean. I still want Greg on the show, John. Be nice. <laughs> okay. I, no, I was just going to say, in my world, I, I definitely um, I lean toward Tom. Uh, that's definitely, I mean, he's given me a lot of tools, put it in my tool belt on what yeah, God no, can I, and can't do, right? And that's, that's kind of where I sit, I think, right now. Now, that's right now. A year from now, who, who the hell knows? But that, that's where I am right now. Well, who knows this what Tom like in a year? You know, that's yeah. right. <laughs> I mean, but I mean to, to, to put yourself into the world of God is not in control uh, really opens you up to a lot of questions uh, that that are going to be thrown at you. Like, well, if God is not in control, then, and then it's fill in the blank. Then what about yeah. this? What about this? What about this? What about this? And there's so many things that people will throw at you. If God is not in control, 
than how do we deal with, right? And I, I think Tom does a really good job. And honestly, um, I, I, you know, I think uh, Mark Harris does too on, uh, and I'm, I'm assuming you do too, um, with this idea that if God is not in control, then there is a, there is a part for us to play, right? Uh, we are not innocent bystanders in, in, in any of this within the world of open theism. There, we are not people who stand by as God controls and, and, and shapes the world and moves things forward. We are ultimately part of this plan. We are, I, I, that's not even the right word. Plan is not the right word. Yeah, but we are, but, we are, but we, we can affect and control just by our nature. Of caring right. and being a loving connection to other humans, how this moves forward, right? Yeah, yeah, I think that's the idea. Right, so I've got you off. T- I've cut you off twice, man. I'm sorry. So um, <laughs> just with my ram. There's so much to talk about, man. Um, okay, so the the quick the quick rundown with mimetic theory is sure. Well, it's not. Um, <laughs> It's, it's, it's not sequential, but we can right. kind of talk about it in that way, uh, to give us an idea. And yeah, your, your intuition is correct in the sense that it's built on, I think you said something like this, but it's built on, uh, unconscious desire, basically, right. desire. Uh, or, okay. or subconscious. The whole thing is, is about desire and the reality that our desires are mediated by the other person. So no one really exactly knows what they want or what they desire. Our entire marketing industry is built upon this. You know, they don't, they don't show you, uh, you know, the soft drink that you want to drink. They show you the soft drink that the model, you know, drinks. And then, so your desires are then influenced by uh, their desires. You know, interestingly enough, that model goes home at night and, you know, he or she is also having their desires mediated by someone else. And so it's just this never ending process. So the, the first piece basically is built on desire and also something that I think is often overlooked, um, is this idea that we are very aware of what the other person desires because of our own lack, because of our own insecurities and anxieties. You know, that other person kind of pops out against the dark, um, it's like this bright light against the dark contrast of our own uh, lack, to use a psychoanalytic or a philosophical phrase. And so because we're aware of you know, our shortcomings, we look at that model and we think, oh gosh, you know, they, they kind of have it together. They have, uh, to use a Girardian phrase, metaphysical autonomy. You know, they, are, they are put together. They, they don't have any lack. And so we want what they want. And so then we begin to imitate them, which is the second piece if we're explaining it this way, um, desire goes to imitation. And then when we imitate them, they strangely notice uh, the attention that we give it. And so they begin to imitate us. And so now we're both reaching for a particular thing. That particular thing, it's arbitrary. It doesn't, doesn't really matter what that thing is. It could be a, the guy or the girl, or it could be a degree, or it could be a car, or again, it could be the soft drink, or any number of things that's basically irrelevant. The point is, is, as I reach for that, they reach for that. And then we, uh, there's this kind of oscillation, this reciprocation of imitating each other over and over, and we're becoming more and more like each other. So the differentiation is breaking down. And so Girard begins to unpack that and show how 
because of that, and again, our own awareness of our own lack and our own being motivated by scarcity rather than abundance, which humans are really good at that, um, myself included, uh, we tend to think we got to get that thing before they get it so we can make it whole. Otherwise, they'll get it and they'll be whole and we won't. You know, We'll be left out. And so conflict grows, the antagonism grows. And then, um, so we got desire, imitation, conflict. And the fourth piece is the piece that, you know, most people are, are, or at least some people are familiar with, with regard to mimetic theory. And that is the scapegoating piece. So Girard basically says, you know, this conflict grows and grows until these two people who are now, they're not just two people because the people always draw in their community with them. So families or townsfolk or villagers or churches or denominations or political alliances, whatever the case. So these people and these people are now facing each other and they're, they're either going to descend into chaos, which has certainly happened. Um, but what Girard discovered was that humanity developed this really ingenious way to deal with all their animosity and their antagonism. And that is at the last moment or at some moment, uh, myself and my opponent agree together through a strange series of whatever, I'm not even sure how it always takes place, but we agree together to turn and point our finger at the scapegoat. And we offload, it's like this psychological projection, but it's psycho-spiritual, this projection onto the back of someone else, who is usually a bit different than us, doesn't always, doesn't work very well if it's not someone just like us. And so then I get to build unity with my opponent and then um, scapegoat that other person. So Gerard talks about unanimity minus one. So it's a power move to get rid of someone. And um, it's super fascinating because, because it works. You know, we, we, the, the, the tension that we've had uh, can be dissipated. I think the word is catharsis probably that get, kind of gets at it the best. And there's a sense of peace that can sweep um, right. over, the, over the crowd. So there's, there's one other important piece to that, but that's, that's the flow so far, desire, imitation, conflict, scapegoating. Right. And I love that, I mean, Gerard, Gerard points out um, places in scripture where we see this play out, right? And there's lots of these places. Um, but I, I think the most stark is, is, uh, is Pilate and Herod, you know, and the Bible says on this day, they became friends, right? The day that they, the day that they decided that they would pour out all of their, they would vent, I guess, the sort of escape valve of simmering conflict would all be vented on the back of Jesus. <sighs> all right. If, if not, if not peace, then stasis, at least some sort of, Hey, let's just get back to a, to a level playing field. And so, yeah, some sort of order. Um, and we do that. And then, but Gerard also points out that Jesus is a lousy scapegoat because <laughs> he doesn't stay dead. So, you know, he's supposed to, so the, you know, we're supposed to, we're supposed to plow under the, the scapegoat, um, never hear from them again. They're just supposed to be just, just like, just like the literal scapegoat within Judaism, right? It's supposed to be driven off in the wilderness and, you know, all the sins of the people placed on the scapegoat and it's driven out and you don't ever see that thing again. Um, and Jesus is like, Hey, <laughs> I'm back. And so I, I do like that idea because I, I see within, within mimetic theory, at least, a, uh, there, there is the potential to break that cycle, right? It's not, it's not hopeless. It's not, Hey, we're all just locked in this this, this never ending repeating pattern. Now we have been given some ideas about how we might could break those cycles of violence and break those cycles. So I, I think that's interesting, but 
what was that other piece then that we're missing? So we have the desire, um, the imitation. We have this, obviously, this this conflict, um, inevitable simmering conflict, right? Which has to be dealt with. It gets dealt with through a scapegoat, typically. And then obviously, lather, rinse, repeat. <laughs> we just do the same thing over and over again. But well, and it should be mentioned too. Um, yeah. The, so Jesus does show back up, but the the point is he doesn't. It's not just that he shows back up, but he shows back up um, bringing peace. Right. And so he's re- he's refusing to re-engage the scapegoating. You know, he's refusing to show back up in battle fatigues and rally the troops to now go scapegoat the Romans or the Jews uh, for scapegoating him. And it's like this most brilliant, beautiful, gracious move. That is, I think, what we are called to do. I think we're invited into this movement of love to... Um, be a part of this process because you are going to be scapegoated. You are going to be hurt. You are going to be ostracized, but then to uh, engage with grace in order that you don't get caught up in the mimetic cycle. And frankly, there's a, there's a ton of that happening in the deconstructing movement. Um, and I don't blame people because some people have been really hurt. I mean, frankly, I've been really hurt by certain crazy things that uh, the church has done to me. Um, so it's, it's challenging, but, um, I think the, the goal at that point is to figure out a way to name the injustice and draw boundary lines, but do it in a in a gracious way. Was it that Shane Shane Claiborne wrote in a in his book, The Liturgy for Ordinary Radicals? He he, he says something to the effect of that real justice is is basically finding the third way between fight or flight. Right, it's finding the third way that um, that allows us to to have justice without becoming perpetrators of injustice. And I'm, I'm paraphrasing what he said, but I, I see that playing out where, where within the deconstruction movement, one of the things that I, I'll, I'll plug my forthcoming book at some point, but one of the things that I try very hard throughout this book that I write about deconstruction is to caution against this kind of cynicism, you know, that, that becomes toxic, right? I mean, it, and, and to remember that inside of all of these systems, um, that we legitimately have issues with and that we legitimately should have, you know, should, should take issue with. Um, but there are human beings inside of those things who are every bit as victimized as as we were by those same systems. And so um, it, it, it's too easy, I think. It's too easy to become cynical and assume everyone has nefarious motives and that they're all, you know, they're all out to get you. And we do what exactly what you just said is, you know, is, you know, we've we've experienced that scapegoating. And then sometimes the second we get a chance to do it to somebody else, we go, yeah, <laughs> my turn, right? And rather than, following Jesus's model of being subversive and saying, no, I'm not playing, I'm not going to play in those games, right? So that's the, that's the, that's the model that I think that Jesus shows us. Thank you, exactly right. Following that, so, you know, you fast forward to where we are now with social media, right? It's super easy to scapegoat different groups within any political ideology or religious ideology and what we've done is we have we have divorced ourselves of this i don't even know what to call it i mean this like like this level of hate towards certain groups of people but then we then isolate our our version of hate towards a very specific group of people that differ from us regardless of that's who we were say 6 months ago a year ago right and so we are we we sit in this world where we are better than them because we have moved away from that but we don't give them the grace or the 
I'm not saying they deserve it because I don't know where they are, right? Like they don't, they don't know where I am. But as we move away from these ideas of hurtful and hateful speech, is it, is it important to then look at these groups that we then scapegoat? Because, I mean, aren't, aren't we doing the same thing in a weird way? Yeah, we, we can. I think that's a part of what all three of us are saying. That's the, that's the hard challenge is to be able to name the injustice of what has taken place, but to do it in a way that we are not antagonizing the beast, so to speak. You know, Nietzsche said, be, beware when you fight the monster that you don't become the monster. And I, I think we, we see that a lot. The, the challenging thing is, is that I'm a white, straight, male, American, relatively affluent, guy. And so um, I've, and I've noticed this a lot of times when I'm in LGBTQ crowd, I kind of have to be careful about how I say that because I haven't been uh, manipulated, coerced, hurt, abused in some of the ways they have. When I'm with my African-American friends, very much same thing. Some of them are like, you know, the hell is that? I, I'm going to stand up for what I believe. And I, you know, I, I can't, I don't really blame them at that point. I think my job at that point is to try to you know, just to extend grace and, and to be the best friend that I can be. But 100%, I think that's what's going on. Jesus doesn't just show back up. He um, he shows up uh, peacefully. And, um, which is interesting too, because the end of the New Testament writings, we have that infamous Revelation book, which has, you know, infamously been interpreted in apocalyptic, violent ways. But Jesus there is the Lamb and... Um, He's, he, you know, the point is he's, he, the, the return of Christ, whatever that is, is, is not marked by bloodshed and violence. And now there might be bloodshed and violence, but it's not because God needs it to be. That would be like, you know, Jesus being the Prince of Peace while he was here, then leaving for a while and then coming back and being like, you know what? I changed my mind. Uh, it was a bad idea. This time around, we're going to kick butt, take names. You know, it's just, it's silly when you look at it that way. So it's peace all the way through. It's love, it's consent all the way through. It's just, this is a, this is a completely different way to look at power. It, it disassembles and reassembles power. I don't know why this keeps coming up and, and it keeps like popping up in my brain, but we, speaking of like how we have to acknowledge what our LGBTQIA plus community is going through, our siblings are going through, or our BIPOC siblings are going through. We we had recently, well, not recently anymore, it's been a while ago, we had a conversation with Christina Cleveland about her book, uh, God is a Black Woman. And one of the first comments I made to her, I think it's prior to us recording, but I, I told her it was, it, your book was a hard, it was hard for me to read. And she says, good, it wasn't meant for you. And that's <laughs> one of those things, it's like, that it's like, yeah, I mean, and, and it was like a moment of like, oh shit. Yeah, I have to give authority where authority is to people that don't look like me and sound like me, that they are not talking to me. They are talking to people that look and sound and talk like them. And for me to be like, hey, I don't understand your book. They're like, good, it wasn't meant for you. It wasn't written for you. But as a white, middle-aged, heterosexual male, I automatically assume that everything is written for me to understand. And that's a, that's a position that a lot of us take. And it's breaking down that ideology, right? And breaking down this idea that not everything that needs to be written, spoken, talked about is meant for me. 
And then that allows us to say, okay, I'm going to take a back seat to this as my siblings of color or my siblings that are in the LGBTQIA plus community uh, reach out to their, their community. And it's time for me to take a back seat. And that fits within Gerard, that fits, fits, fits within the, you know, the open theism that sometimes my voice isn't the voice that needs to move this forward, right? Yeah, it's a very relational way to approach it. And I think, uh, an important way. And there's, there's, uh, lowercase p power in all of that, uh, in the ability to be able to back off of that. And I think probably, well, I don't, I'm pretty confident that that's what a lot of white American Christians are being invited into is just this, take a breath, back up, give everyone space. Uh, it's not all about you. If you don't understand it, fine. You just don't understand it, but you can still lean into grace and space because this is a relational cosmos. This is not a hierarchy dominated, you know, top down kind of a thing. And, um, it's, it's challenging at times, but I think it's a really beautiful invitation for, for us. So we've got the, you know, again, for those of you listening, there, there's a lot more to all of this. Jonathan's given us a very skeletonized view. Uh, you can get really deep into the weeds. Um, I've read multiple Gerard books. Uh, they're not easy. Um, it might be easier to start with somebody who writes about Gerard. <laughs> I can be like, okay, Gerard for Dummies starts over here. Uh, I think the first book <laughs> I ever read. Well, I was, I don't know if you know who Michael Harden is, but I was good friends with Michael Harden back in the day. Um, and I was, I jumped headfirst. He had this Facebook group that was for a little while was very dynamic, very interesting. And so this, that was my first foray into any of this. And so I immediately went out and bought the sacred and the violet. I bought, you know, I see Satan fall like lightning. I see, you know, so I saw these up here. So good. So good, but difficult and, you know, presupposes a lot of, you know, there's, there's a lot of stuff that you, you kind of have to go in knowing a little bit of, you know, you just can't go in anyway. So, um, I found, Books like Matt Stefano's book, From the Blood of Abel, to, to be a very good resource to kind of, hey, let's just, let's make this somewhat more accessible. You know what we need? We need a, we need a book called Theology of Consent, Mimetic Theory yes, that's in an Open and Relational Universe. And so that way people can ease into this. Yeah. And I think so. And I, and I love, so, so walk me through this then. So we have these two pieces. Um, we have, you know, Mimetic Theory. We have Open and Relational Theology. At what's their what's their point of convergence in your mind? I mean, I, I, I sort of gave you what I thought might be the case, but give me the the real deal. Well, and also to answer your other question, the the last piece that sometimes is overlooked, you kind of already said it: the the rinse and repeat, desire, imitation, conflict, scapegoating, and then the the conflict always comes back up because it's a fake kind of piece. And right. so, what what Gerard uh, says is that humanity figured out a way to to repeat and to ritualize, and that's where. That's religion is formed out of all that. Right. And what's, Which is how we can sacralize violence, right? Yeah. And what's really interesting with that is that, you know, a lot of times you'll hear people say, well, religion just inspires violence, which I think there probably is some truth of that. I understand the sentiment, but it probably doesn't go deep enough. Uh, if you're Girardi and you say, actually, no, violence inspires religion. So it's because we never dealt with our violence in the first place. We never dealt with our insecurity and our lack, and we just keep projecting it onto the other person and then scapegoating over and over and over. We've built all these layers. What if you went back to the beginning and you just said, you know what? Yeah, you're in, you got anxiety, insecurity, you have lack, but God loves you. God's with you. God's not separate. It's a relational cosmos. So that's so then, so then anthropologically, you could say 
right? Then, okay, then, then human beings invented religion to, to institutionalize their violence that they don't want to deal with. Give it a context, right? Give it a structure. Give it, well, give actually, it, give it yeah, reason. Uh, yeah, actually, they, uh, Gerard, Gerard would say something like religion was invented to manage the violence, right. to, um, to put limits around it. So it's not that they don't want to deal with it. Subconsciously, they know, we know, subconsciously, we know it's a, it's a huge problem. So the scapegoating mechanism gives, gives us a way to deal with it and to offload our problems onto the oppressed, you know, onto the victim. And so we victimize others. Uh, well, when Jesus steps in as the victim, it completely subverts the whole thing. And, you know, we've, we've just been a mess. <laughs> we didn't yeah. get it. You know, we've been a mess still for a couple thousand years and, and, and we still are because we, uh, you know, it's too vulnerable to, to pay too much attention to the oppressed. So yeah, it's, it's really cool. And so then to, then to try to bring that together with open relational was super challenging. Um, yeah, basically, I tried to bring it around. You know, there's this there's this coming together on the relational piece, like we already talked about. So that that seemed to kind of make sense. Um, there was some there was some divergence around like is scapegoating does that really is that really the the nature of reality? Is humanity always been scape um, you know a scapegoating species? So that was really interesting. Because when I dug into that, what I realized was that, well, scapegoating probably is as old as Cain and Abel, but it's not necessarily as old as uh, humanity. So what I think is, and you kind of have to follow this um, uh, a little bit, but it seems like scapegoating emerges around the time that something like the fall would have taken place. And I don't prescribe to an actual literal fall like Adam and Eve, you know, literally sinned. And then because of that injustice and, or, you know, uh, sin or pain entered the world. But there was a time period around which stories like that began to emerge. And it would have been the time period when humanity moved. This is kind of nerdy, sorry. But uh, when humanity moved from uh, hunter-gatherers to agrarian society. So in that move, uh, for the first time in history, humanity began, you know, the, we began to have people who were like uh, land barons or lords or people who own large tracts of property that then began to use others to farm their land. And so there was this uh, inequity, this unequal um, way that people were being um, compensated and the the owners were getting you know more of the share, and then people were being overworked. So it's this whole transition from hunter gatherer to agrarian is around the time that something like the fall could have happened with something like an Adam and 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 uh, Eve. I can't remember her Hebrew name, um, and I find that to be really interesting. So previous to that, what? Uh, evolutionary biologists, and I get into this just a little bit in my book, not deeply, but what certain evolutionary biologists and cultural anthropologists and archaeologists are saying is that previous to that, we actually, we came together, I'm saying we loosely, this would have been, you know, like Homo sapiens uh, 100,000 years ago, we came, we weren't um, inspired so much by competition, we were inspired more by co cooperation. 
And I found that to be really, really interesting. And when I first began to discover that, I thought, oh, well, this kind of debunks Girardian stuff. And what I realized after a while is, no, not necessarily. What Girard is saying is, no, that this all begins to happen with Adam and Eve and then Cain and Abel. Cain, you know, kills his brother, uh, doesn't care when God comes looking for him. You know, where's my brother? Am I my brother's keeper? Cain ends off, uh, ends up moving east of Eden and founding the first civilization upon murder and violence. So that seems to be um, a kind of a really interesting time period. And since then, we've basically been messed up. We're all kind of living downstream from that. But it doesn't necessarily mean that previous to that, we were driven by desire and acquisitive mimetic desire and violence as much as happened. And I don't know if anyone even cares about that. No, but, but that, I, that's... I, as you're as you're talking, <laughs> it's it's my brain's moving, so it's it, you have to you have to excuse the smoke that you can see coming from my ears. I'm like, oh wait a minute. So it sounds like as we move from nomadic sort of you know hunter gatherer people, and we've moved more towards this agrarian society that is more now based on competition, right? That now that scarcity things comes into play or comes into focus. So now you don't have an abundance of hey, I can go here or I can go there, and there's not there's no there's no lack of resources, so there's really no need to compete. We can cooperate. And then once we found you know, the first civilizations where people now um, begin to have control over their environment and they start to actually control um, the products. And th- so then now scarcity can come into play. Not so much that we are, uh, I think it was Brueggemann who talks about um, the, lie of, the lie of scarcity, you know, where he talks about, listen, there, there is no scarcity, really. But, but when people have come in, land barons, have come in and then hoarded everything to control it and then dole it out as they see fit. They've created scarcity, which then creates competition. Right. Which creates competition. Always- and then also the, uh, you know, the worker, the land worker is seeing how that other person is living. They're seeing their own anxiety and their own lack. And Desire can become envy. Desire, yep. Jealousy turns into envy and this... Uh, lights the fire of, of the whole scapegoating uh, mechanism. So it, it kind of makes sense. So that, yeah, that wow. was, that was kind of cool to see that. Um, so open and relational, you know, open and relational has less to say about depending on who you read, but less to say about how sin entered the world or what sin is. Um, it will want to be more like, uh, maybe a ri- they don't necessarily always use this language, but maybe like original blessing that leads you know, then allows um, sin to form. But honestly, it's really, it's not that language. It's more like original potentiality that then gives, that allows for either blessing or cursing or, you know, yeah. however, whatever words you want to use. So it all kind of fit. It was like, oh yeah, that, I see mimetic theory fitting into that. So it's kind of cool. Yeah, so then, so then this theology of consent says what? Because I, I know what I think it goes, but uh, again, I'm, I'm asking you for large brushstrokes here. But so the theology who who is the who is the one giving consent? It was the one, like, sort of, I guess, working inside of consent. Is it God consenting to our will and vice versa to some degree, or how does that play out? Yeah, it's a really interesting and challenging idea. The idea that God, I think, God is love, and that if God is love, the fundamental characteristic of love is consent, which is not. It's not a real common phrase. So to talk about this kind of stuff can can be 
make people nervous. Well, let's make them nervous. Go crazy. Yeah, 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 for sure. <laughs> uh, trust me, I've been nervous for several years now. So, I love it. Uh, nice. Simone Weil wrote an essay a um, hundred years ago, so actually called uh, the Th- theology of consent. I yeah. figured that out late into this into this yeah, I've got project. A copy on my but, on my nightstand. Oh, cool! Yeah, she's great. Yeah, she's awesome. So um, you know, and she's like, she's got this line. It's either there or in Gravity and Grace. I don't remember where. Like that, God um, does no violence to secondary causes uh, in accomplishment of his means. So in other words, God's not interested in like getting into ethical, moral games where he or she uses other people and does violence to other people in order to get something else done right. You know, right. Uh, that God is constantly working in and amongst and that, and that love is actually infused within the order of, of things within the nature of things. Wow. And, that consent is constantly working and it makes it feel as if love is not powerful. But what it does is it requires you or maybe invites you to reframe your definitions of what power is. So open and relational theology will constantly want to reframe power around relational power versus authoritative power. You know, and there's, there's a difference like, uh, when I think about the difference between my nation's largest aircraft carrier or I think about the love that I have for my daughter. Like one is authoritative power, one is relational power. And what I suspect is, as strong as that aircraft carrier is and all that it symbolizes and all that it means, what I suspect is is that love is even stronger and will outlast all of that and is, is more sustainable. It's more ecological. Um, it will be around forever. Um, the authoritative power, it's just, it's just a different way of looking at it. And I think, I think Girardians are interested in that too. They don't use that same language, but, um, they're very interested in how power dynamics and how it plays out and who's asking who to sacrifice and why and, and the role of consent. And so, pretty quickly landed on that, like being a, a linchpin um, between these two super important paradigms. Yeah, I mean, it's, it sort of strikes me as reminiscent of even Luther's sort of uh, motifs of left-handed and right-handed power, right? Or that left-handed power. Jesus represents more left-handed power. He's not, which is why I think I lean towards sort of this open relational theology where God's not controlling in an authoritative way. He is this left-handed power, which is the power of uh, of consent, which looks to all the world like weakness, but is actually um, very, very strong. And then this power that we project that seeks to coerce and to manipulate and to force people is actually weakness projected in in, in some sort of caricature of power, right? And so I, I love it. I actually was reading through, uh, I've read through Brad Jersak's book, More Christ Like God, more times than I can think of. And he's got a section in there about, about consent. And I was like, and, and and I know um, I know how 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 much he loves Simone Way, and had actually translated one of her one of her works, and um, yeah, is very 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 conversant in in her in, in, in her writing. But um, so I know that's played a big influence on him as well. Um, I love it. I, we had Brad on not too. I guess it's been about a year now, hasn't it, John? It's been too long, and I kind of put him on the spot about open relational theology. And he's not he's not there. 
Um, although he didn't really find, he doesn't have any particular bone of contention. He just, he's, he's just very orthodox. And so <laughs> there's, you know, there's certain places he's not willing, um, at least now he's like, ah, well, I can't quite go there. I totally get what they're saying. I respect what they're saying. Um, he's like, I know Tom, I get, you know, so, which is, correct me if I'm wrong. It seems like within these circles anyway, I, I guess it can get contentious at times, but, but what I have seen is less. And I'm sure there's always going to be an outlier, somebody who can be, you know, an asshole and really contentious about their point of view. But it, it, but it does seem to be a very collaborative, sort of cooperative world you, you live in. Well, once you buy into the idea that things are open, it doesn't have to go one particular way. And, and once you buy into the other idea that it's all relational, you know, you your ideas come about because of other people's ideas and my ideas come about because of, you know, it, we're so interconnected, it's impossible to pull it all apart. So yeah, the, the very essence of that lends itself towards people being way less dogmatic, which is, which is great. It's completely opposite of the way I grew up. Oh, and yeah. Uh, yeah. so it's, it's challenging. It's also challenging to lead a faith community at times because you know, we've all been programmed to really know, really to lead by telling people what we're against rather than for what we're for. It's easier to draw up lines and, as we've been talking about, to scapegoat the other and to talk about ourselves as over against the other. So it's it's uh, it's a bit discombobulating because of all that. But um, yeah, I love that whole piece of it. That the 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 graciousness of it is seems to be a little bit more like Jesus than. Yeah, I, I think so. That's again in my in my little snapshots that I've seen. I don't, I don't, I don't roll in any highbrow circles like y'all do. Yeah, so and actually, my, you know, right? No, so. actually, I think yeah. open a relational camp was doing really well until I started getting into it, and now I think I've just <laughs> I've I'm importing a bunch of mimetic dysfunction, and I'm probably screwed the whole thing up. Or, or have you injected it with something new and vital, and like, oh my gosh, okay, we hadn't considered how this piece might work. Like, like my compliment, what we've, I, 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 I can't wait to read your, your dissertation in your book. Um, cause I'm, I'm fascinated by how those two things will, will work together. And again, I, I don't, I, I have an inkling of how that might work, but I'm, I'm sure you're, uh, much more articulate in your writing than I am in my mumblings. But, um, uh, but I've always been a big, I've always been a big, you know, always for a very long time. I've been very, very interested in, in Gerard and I've looked for ways um, maybe this has been your experience too. There's times when it's so theoretical almost, it's hard to find application. And this seems like it might be a good way to bring some rubber meets the road type of stuff to some, to some concepts that at times just seem to be academic. Okay. Well, that's all well and good. I had this, in fact, I had this argument with my dad eight or nine years ago where we're talking about, I'm just excited about it. I'm trying to explain it. And he's like, okay, yeah, but so what? I'm like, what do you mean? So what? This, this, this changes everything. He's like, well, how, how? And I'm like, well, I don't know. It just does. You know? So, and I, I had to admit walking away from that conversation, like, yeah, but he's got a point. You know, a lot of this is a, is a great mental exercise. And there are times when you go, okay, yeah, but what does this actually do for us? What's the practical side of this for us? And I, it's, I, I am struck by what I think your writing might do, which is to maybe concretize some of this in a way that helps us to actually um, make some practical use of it. And, and I don't know, I'm not sure if that was your intention or if it was just a, just a cool idea to see if you can get those two things to, you know, peanut butter and chocolate to go together, man. And be like, holy shit, Reese's. That's amazing. 
<laughs> exactly. Well, yeah, uh, I can't say that my initial motivation was to try to come up with concrete examples necessarily, but I think that that is there is a byproduct of some of that is happening because I'm I'm trying to bring these things together and and see how they again uh, interact and sometimes it's not very graceful and so to try to work through all of that and to see what each of them are saying um, yeah I'd like to think that I'd like to think it would be helpful for people and it's it's slightly academic it's certainly more academic than anything I've written in the past but I don't think it's so much so that um, that people will be will be put off. And both both paradigms are so interesting. I've never, ever had a conversation. Actually, I don't think about either one of these concepts where people were just like, uh, you know, that they were just bored or they didn't want... Right, I mean, they right. might have been bored with me. You know, or got <laughs> but the concepts were intriguing, right? But mimetic theory, man, it blows up your, your mind. And open relational stuff, I mean, it blows up your your whole concepts of from the smallest to the biggest. So it's really, really great stuff. I'm just, I'm just scratching the surface. And again, it, it appears I'm like one of the first to kind of do it in this way. So hopefully others will take it and run with it. Yeah. Those, I don't know if this was the same for you. The, both those concepts for me were the, were, was this paradigm of like, okay, um, once you see it, you can't unsee it. And so, so like my first little introduction to mimetic theory at all. I started, then I'm like, oh, shoot. Oh, okay. Now I see this in operation everywhere. I see it all. So, and the same thing happened with open relational theology. All of a sudden, I'm like, oh, this touches on everything. I mean, this isn't just limited to one thing. So, once, so you, you just can't unsee it. So, but one thing I noticed about, um, you know, just to throw a little shade on the Girardians a little bit, because there's such a much more established camp, it seems like, and they've been around for, I mean, Girard's been doing his work for years and they are, you know, they're a disparate group of people. There are some that are, you know, not religious at all and some that are very religious and some that, um, I have been in and out of several, especially Facebook groups, um, that get contentious. I mean, there's, it seems like they need an interjection of, of relational theology, if nothing else, to remind them that, listen, all of this stuff is, is, is good and interesting. But when you start, you know, trashing your relationships over disagreements, um, you're missing an integral part of this, you know. So, uh, I, I can see you you infusing some humanity back into the otherwise just wholly academic stuff, and saying, "Listen, there's there's this component too, which I I think would be super useful." But well, yeah, and I've 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 come to the Girardian side from through the open and race relational theology. So, I haven't I wasn't in the Girardian camp prior to being in the open relational camp. So. I, I definitely see where they they work well together. Um, I I think the open open theism definitely gives you a a broader scope to start from, um, and that's because that's where I started from. I can see where maybe people who start from the Girardian side is like, well, yeah, but you need to get into this all this academic stuff first. But for me, the open relational theology really gave me a, a, a really nice foothold into Girardian theology or Girardian thought, I guess I should say. So for me, it was an easier, I think it was an easier step. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to sharing what you're, you're bringing to the world of bringing these two together. And I think it's going to be something that's going to be really important to people who are trying to figure out this connection between these two. And I really, really am excited about it. Yeah. Dude, I'm psyched. 
I'm psyched. Yeah. I can't wait. I'm a nerd. I'm a nerd out with you when I, when yeah. I nerd out with this book. Let's so I can't wait. Let's do it. Let's, All right. Cool. <laughs> wait, um, Dan, let's, uh, let's not make it, let's not have it be another year before we, uh, are you still yeah, podcasting really? by the way? I do. Um, okay, I, cool. uh, I hit these kind of short seasons and, yeah. uh, like right now I'm doing something where I, I took a bunch of questions that young people had emailed me or Facebooked me and, and I'm running them through an open relational and mimetic theory filter. Wow. And cool. I'm trying to give, re- I'm cool. trying to give response to all these things. So, you know, someone asks about meaning making or, you know, uh, who am I? What does it even matter? So I try to think, okay, what, what do all these people think? And so I'm doing that right now, some, and, um, yeah, that's been fun. Yeah. Very cool. Well, like I, I mean, said, I, I, can't have, to... I don't have two hosts. I'm not that cool. I, that's what I'm saying. You, <laughs> you, if, you, if you had two, you could put out something once a week, you know what I'm saying? Know. But, uh, I, I don't even know. The Heretic Happy only puts out one every two weeks. They're slacking, yeah. John. I'm still shit at the Heretic Happy Hour twice now in this, in this yeah, episode. And, uh, Matt, if you're listening, Keith, come on, man. I feel a lot of mimetic desire. I know, uh, really. There is. Yeah, there is. We, we, uh, we didn't even know we wanted what they had until we saw that they had it. And then, and then when we wanted it, it reinforced the value of what they, so yeah, we've just, we've got a similar yeah. conflict. I think Jason's <laughs> going to be our scapegoat. Oh, is it? Oh, okay. Okay. I don't know. We, someone's someone's going to have to go. Someone's uh, got to do nah, it. Just, it's it's going to be good, be, man. It's going to be us. <laughs> going to be, yeah. It, it usually is the weaker of the three. So, but no, it's uh, it's awesome, man. There's so, like I said, so much good stuff, so much good ground to be to be covered there. So, um, don't forget uh, the book is available. Um, Theology of Consent, Jonathan J. Foster, right? Is it under? Because there's a couple Jonathan Fosters on Amazon. You got to be careful. You end up with, uh, yeah, with some some yeah. book about farming or something. Um, yeah. <laughs> so, but um, it's probably better, probably better writing. But yeah, I'm Jonathan J. Foster. <laughs> Jonathan J. Foster, and uh, uh, yeah, you you're gonna want to pick this up. You're gonna want to nerd out a little bit, um, man. It's just just digging into this all this stuff. It's it's amazing, and uh, we'll link to all your stuff in the show notes. Make sure people can access you on on in, in whatever ways are best. And man, we just appreciate you coming on and spending the time with us. Thank yeah, you so much. For sure. Absolutely. I really appreciate you having me. And uh, yeah, it'll be fun to interact with folks about all of this. Thank you for listening to This Is Not Church. Be sure to rate and review the podcast on your platform of choice. If you would like to partner with us, visit patreon.com slash thisisnotchurch, where you will receive exclusive content such as early access to episodes, videos of upcoming episodes, and live Q&A sessions. Be sure to check out our Facebook group, or follow us on Twitter and Instagram. All the links are in the show notes. We'll be back soon with another episode.